Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 New Year's Eve parties in San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. CommonwealthClub.org Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Gloria Duffy, as you've heard. I'm the president and CEO of the Commonwealth Club. I am moderating tonight's program called The Queen Makers, held together with San Francisco Magazine. And San Francisco Magazine, of course, assembled this wonderful panel for us, uh, those women who were profiled in the issue of the magazine. I think you'll find the article in the December San Francisco Magazine to be very interesting, uh, The Queen Makers, Women Power Brokers in San Francisco. So you know that San Francisco is on the leading edge often of social and political change. And that has been true in many areas, but not least of them in the way that women are leading as uh, women's voices are being amplified and women's power is increasing in many, many sectors in the United States. There are major changes going on in this country in terms of women's power and influence. I think of somebody who has often been on this stage, Nancy Pelosi, who wrote a book a few years ago called Know Your Power. And women increasingly know their power and they're helping other women to discover and know and exercise their power. Today, we have the most female representatives ever elected to the House of Representatives, uh, the national narrative has started. Yes, let's give a hand for that. Yes. An applause. <laughs> the national narrative has started to recognize women of color as a powerful voting block. Women political donors reached an all-time high following the 2018 midterm elections. For the first time in history, 100% of S&P 500 companies have at least one woman on their board of directors. And although it's been some years now since I served in the federal government, I do remember the day back in the mid-1990s when I was at an interagency meeting involving the White House, the CIA, the State Department, Department of Energy, and the Department of Defense where I worked, and all of the representatives in the room were women. And we all looked at each other and thought, this has probably never happened before on a major defense policy issue. So it's been a process of change over the last couple of decades. A lot of this change is being led and uh, provoked by the efforts of the women featured in the San Francisco Magazine article. Now, the article dwells on the gains, but also uh, elaborates some of the continuing gaps. Women of color, for example, face unique challenges when running for office, particularly when it comes to raising money. The CEO and C-suite numbers for women, although they're increasing, remain <laughs> relatively low, uh, and they're even worse for women of color. And more and more, reproductive health rights and immigrants' rights are at the forefront of ongoing heated debates uh, in the country, perhaps debates that issues are being debated that we never thought would be uh, up for debate again in this country. So that's why our guests say their work is more critical now than ever. So it's my pleasure to introduce the Queen Makers with us today. Uh, who are being praised and highlighted for changing the face of power and politics in America. So to my immediate left, Julia Castro Abrams, dubbed The Connector in the magazine article. She's the founder and CEO of How Women Lead and an expert on board governance and building diverse boards that are a strategic advantage to the, the companies as well as being more representative. How Women Lead comprises a network of over 12,000 women dedicated to promoting diverse women's voices and propelling women's leadership forward. She has won the More Jobs Genius Award, <laughs> the Morgan Stanley Innovation Award, Cisco's Innovation and Technology Award, and the League of Women Voters Women Who Could Be President Award. <laughs> 
Snap. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Next, we have Amy Allison, who's dubbed the Game Changer. She's, yeah. <laughs> she is founder and president of She the People, a national network connecting women of color to transform our democracy. By bringing together the most promising women of color candidates, strategists, and movement leaders, Ms. Allison is one of the primary architects for the electoral successes in 2018 that made it the year of women of color in politics. She is also the president of Democracy in Color, which empowers the multiracial progressive electorate through media, public conversations, research, and analysis. She's the author of Army of None, and has we'll have to find out what that means, and has written for the New York Times, The Hill, and Essence. Next, we have Alita Garcia, described in the SF, SF Magazine article as The Advocate. She's director of coalitions and vice president of policy for Forward.com U.S., an advocacy organization focused on passing comprehensive immigration reform. Her expertise is on Latino civic engagement and political power building, in 2012, she served as the National Latino Vote Deputy Director for President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. Yay. A better time. We have then uh, Anna N.T. Asaari Tubbs, dubbed the intersectionalist in the uh, <laughs> article. Uh, she's a writer, a teacher, and currently a Ph.D. student who holds a master's in multidisciplinary gender studies from the University of Cambridge and a bachelor's degree in medical anthropology from Stanford University. Anna's research, writing, and talks are centered on gender and race issues in the U.S., especially as these relate to politics and education. Currently, she's pursuing her Ph.D. in sociology at the University of Cambridge as a Bill and Melinda Gates scholar. She recently accepted her first book deal, and she's also the first partner of Stockton, married to Mayor Michael Tubbs, who we have also been delighted to have here on the Commonwealth Club stage. <laughs> Johanna Silva-Waki, dubbed the strategist, is West Coast State and Local Director for EMILY's List, a political action committee that really needs no introduction in this group that helps elect Democratic female candidates. She started as a community organizer, encouraging the Latino community to become citizens, and then started her own public relations and political consulting forum, eventually joining Emily's List in 2016. And Gretchen Sisson, dubbed the donor, is a sociologist and democratic political donor. Her professional research focuses on cultural narratives on abortion and reproductive health. She serves on the boards of directors for both WDN Action, the political giving arm of the Women's Donor Network, and Emerge America, and as a steering committee member for Electing Women Bay Area. So welcome, everybody. So any of you can help take this conversation anywhere you want it to go. I'm going to start us off, but... New topics can come up. Questions from the audience are welcome. Uh, I believe you have question cards. You can write them. Uh, and so we're going to have a very interactive discussion this evening. I'd like to start by asking each of you to spend a moment on how you first realized that you wanted to spend your time advocating for women and women's power and women's influence. Back to childhood, back to uh, your first work experiences. What was it that brought you into this battle? Well, I'm the oldest one on this stage, so I'll go first. How about that? I, I, would, um, I would disagree with well, you. Well, okay. We might, we might have to fight over that one. She's like, I'm right um, here. Uh, so I was a Title IX baby, which means I was in that first generation of women who uh, got the advantage of investing equal money in women and uh, girls, women, uh, our sports, just like men and boys. Um, and uh, it was formative for me. And there was such a big, there was such big momentum at that time about women athletes. Um, and uh, so there was all this beautiful energy and momentum. But then at the exact same time, right before I went to college, um, there were my, my 
mom was a stay-at-home mom and all of her friends got divorced because these their husbands would leave them for the 24 year old uh and um they and they were destitute this was before i'm old enough that this was before the laws were set that said you have to give someone half right so these women gave up everything spent their lives raising kids they were you know 50 years old and they were stuck and i remember thinking that will never be me. Um, and there was something so powerful about being an athlete. And I feel like the combination of those things sort of set me on this journey. And, um, and then I had this great professor at college. And of course, then you know how that goes. They, they set you on a path to gender and racial justice and that's fun. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my beginning. That's a good beginning. Let's go right down the line. Uh, uh, in, in 2014, uh, I, I'd heard tell and wanted to be involved in helping to protect the rights of uh, people in Georgia to vote. I'd I'd heard tell they had this terrible person who was secretary of state (laughs) that was refusing to add people to the voter rolls. Uh, So I I went down there with a a couple of uh, other organizations and we had a press conference in the Georgia state Capitol. It's just like this beautiful building um, with marble, it's kind of like San Francisco's, but you know, it's Georgia. <laughs> same thing. Everything's same, 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 but different. <laughs> there were about, um, I was joined by Moral Monday, which is mostly women. And we did a press conference telling this guy, Brian Kemp, who was Secretary of State, to do his job. There had been a woman that was elected to the state legislature. That was a minority leader who had started this organization called the New Georgia Project. And she and her staff was registering people, not just in Atlanta, but if you know anything about Georgia, you know that the Black Belt, which is the rural south in southern Georgia, is a black part of, this, of, of the state. You know that the suburbs are uh, very populous. And she did some calculations, and she figured out that they could win that southern state if they reached out and registered uh, people of color, young people, um, women of color. And so Brian Kemp was refusing to add them to the voter rolls. And that same dude (laughs) that same dude would be the one that the founder of New Georgia Project would face uh, in uh, 2017 and 2018 for governor, the race for governor of Georgia. The woman was Stacey Abrams. Hey, hey. All right. And everyone in this room might know her name, but in 2017, people in San Francisco, except maybe just a f- few of us. <laughs> I knew Stacey in 2017. <laughs> except maybe a few of us uh, knew this remarkable leader who had this vision of building this multiracial coalition and was... Uh, Uh, a beautiful representation of what uh, true leadership looks like and the progressive South looks like. This is important because a lot of us who live in San Francisco dismiss places like Georgia as the red part, like we're better here somehow. But it wasn't that at all. The thing is, in 2017, um, this brilliant, amazing leader was not known to the country, and she had decided to declare her candidacy for governor in the Black Belt in southern Georgia in Albany. And I was the only person from outside of Georgia to fly in and drive four hours (laughs) by the Alabama border eating barbecue on the way (laughs) to see this historic moment. At that time in 2017, it was the summer, the... The the state Democratic Party didn't believe a black woman was electable. The the uh, you know a lot of donors and and certainly the AJC, which is the big paper, didn't believe she was electable. And so I realized I had a mission, and that was to expand the imagination, not just of people in Georgia, but everywhere that this is what a governor looks like. Mm -hmm. This is what a governor looks like. (laughs) Melanated natural hair, not size two. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, brilliant. So smart. Mm -hmm. And loving and strongly progressive. 
And I launched a campaign. It wasn't intended for people in Georgia, but it was to tell a story of the greatness, the greatness that could be embodied in this person. I became a cheerleader for Stacey Abrams. And I, I helped to introduce Stacey Abrams to a national audience outside those of us who work in, you know, in the political world. Now she's on the short list to be VP. So it was in that moment where I dedicated myself to being a cheerleader to help, um, help elevate our consciousness and our sights about what the possibilities for us were that set my path today. Terrific. Great story. Alita? I find oftentimes, uh, my name is Alita Garcia. I'm the vice president of advocacy at forward.us. Um, so our organization primarily spends time trying to fight to legalize the 11 million undocumented people and to try to lower the incarceration rate in the United States. And so I find oftentimes, and this was really awkward to like be on a photo on the cover of a magazine, um, speak. I can't even see the people in the back, the lights. <laughs> this is like really not my thing. Um, because I think, um, I, I'd rather not talk about myself right now. I'd like to talk about the mother who is sitting, uh, in Juarez right now because we have ended asylum in the United States unlawfully. Um, and she's making a decision. Do I give the cartels $8,000 to take my child to the border in Tijuana to try to cross over as an unaccompanied child? Um, and we're fighting for the women whose spouses and children are incarcerated and can't afford to drive to jail to go see them. And these women, they don't get on the cover of magazines every day. And um, that's why I said yes, so I could convince you all that electing women was also about immigration, because yeah. um, I think... Um, I think we need to be thinking about the women in our country who cannot vote, who cannot donate, who cannot run for office as equals as those women who can, as the elected officials who serve them, as equal constituents, whether or not our current democracy gives them the space to participate. And so that's how I want to spend the time answering this question. Okay. Yes. That's, that's a good one. Yes. Gretchen? Yeah, so I, um, my professional background is as a sociologist, um, and my work there has always been in a reproductive health, uh, space and particularly within the reproductive justice movement. Um, and I think similar to Alita, I, I reached this tipping point where I was feeling like the issues that were most core to me and my approach to an understanding of justice and freedom in this world were not prioritized by the people that were holding power um, in our government. And um, certainly 2016 brought that to just the blazing foreground. Um, and what I realized, and I, I'm up here as a donor, which is a weird thing to, to be, <laughs> to be on a panel as, but um, it's, that there, there is this lever of, of money, um, that holds tremendous power in our political space. Um, and after 2016, you know, I was waking up and have continued to wake up every day and say, what am I doing to make sure that this doesn't happen again? What am I doing to make sure that the things that are most important to how I, I understand my vision of what I want the world to be, uh, what am I doing to make that happen? Um, and, I, I have resources. It's one of the easiest ways for me to affect change. Um, and what was so powerful about coming out of 2016 was just the wave of tremendously capable, passionate, diverse, talented, brilliant uh, women candidates um, that were coming to Emily's list, were coming to emerge, um, were connecting with she the people, and and were saying we're ready to lead. Um, and women have always had a harder time fundraising. Women have always had a harder time, sort of in that it, you know the, calling it the the first primary, right? It's just funding your campaign. Um, and it was so easy for me to be like, yes, I see that you share these same values that I want to make sure are prioritized. Um, 
And so writing those first few checks just felt like a really good coping mechanism after <laughs> about like three years ago in that like really dark December moment. Um, and then um, trying to be more strategic and thoughtful and looking really closely at who are these candidates? What are they running for? Why do I want this person to be in this office, in this district, in this state? Why do I think they're right to flip this seat? Um, and... Trying to figure out a plan for how I could actually, instead of just like spending money to get it out there because it it felt like an easy way, um, but how can I actually accomplish something with what I'm doing? Um, And so I think it was sort of the intersection of these this work that I have always done and these values that I've always held and feeling them so very much under threat and feeling like there was a real opportunity to move the needle. Thank you. Anna. So a lot of my work centers on highlighting women who otherwise would be forgotten or erased. Um, And so much of that stemmed first and foremost from my mom, a powerful woman who spent her life um, working in law to help more women, um, whether that was with voting rights um, or with reproductive health rights all over the world. Um, And so a small story about that first. I often tell people about my background and that I moved around a lot growing up. And so many times people say, oh, well, what did your dad do? That's always the first question. And my answer is both my parents um, were lawyers. And that doesn't necessarily matter all that much what their title was or what their job was, but it really taught me from an early age that women's stories were erased, that we were so often estimated to be weaker, less intelligent, whatever else the lesser of. And so seeing my mom constantly standing up um, and proving that to be wrong uh, was my first lesson in that. And I wanted to dedicate my own work. Um, I'm, I'm a nerd. I, I love school. I'm the intersectionalist. My whole thing is about academics. Um, but I wanted to spend my career highlighting women who, like I said, would have otherwise been erased. And so something that was mentioned in my bio was that I accepted my first book deal, which I'm really excited about. Um, thank you. But more so, not necessarily the deal, it's very exciting, but more so the women that I get to tell um, their stories and share their stories with the world. And so I'm going to be writing about the mothers of MLK Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. Yeah. And cool. Yes. <laughs> and again, similar to the story I told about my mom and with my dad, um, you assume, yeah, okay, this, these men were awesome. They did incredible things, but just wait till you hear their mother's story. <laughs> yes. Yeah, really. Yes. <laughs> and well, Johanna. I wait. <laughs> um, so I got into this. So I immigrated here in 1981 with my family from Nicaragua. And so for me, politics has always been part of uh, who I am. But growing up, it wasn't something that we talked about, right? It was the reason why we immigrated. It was the e- the reason why we were struggling so much to gain documentation. Um, but when I was going through college in the 90s, 187, 209 were happening, right? So 187, the anti-immigrant initiative, 209, affirmative action. And I couldn't stand, I couldn't stay by the sideline anymore, right? I personally felt attacked as an immigrant, as a student, um, and and in particularly as a woman, right? And so um, one of the things that I started to do was organize in our communities, specifically the Latino community, around gaining citizenship. It was the time where we were seeing a wave of immigrants from 1986 amnesty law that were now eligible to become U.S. citizens, now being eligible to vote. And so that's where I really got my start. Um, and as further along that I got in organizing and doing work in the community, politics and running and running candidates for office is where I ended up. But the further that I went along, the less people that looked like me were in the rooms. The less people that looked like me were doing strategy, were running campaigns, were really talking about how we were going to launch campaigns, how candidates were going to be recruited. And so the opportunity came up um, for me in 2002 to open up my own consulting firm with another woman who was also an immigrant, uh, who was Filip- who is Filipino-American, and um, 
we were very much the very first, um, if not the only ones at the time, women-owned, uh, women-owned, uh, people of color-owned, and immigrant-owned political consulting and public relations firm. Mm. Um, <laughs> thank you. And so, uh, in fact, that's how I met Amy Allison. We ran her uh, city council race in Oakland in 2004. Um, but again, you know, the power that we were changing the way that even politics looked, right, in terms of the people we were supporting, the, the women we were running for office. We ran, um, you know, the first Filipina-American to the school board in San Francisco, the first Asian-American woman to serve as assessor in the city. We ran Susan Leal's campaign. Um, in her field work uh, the few, as field uh, staff people for uh, her mayoral race, right? And even then, we this it took you know almost probably 15 years later for us to have our, uh, our elect our first woman mayor here in San Francisco. But the thing is that really we came in as two people that didn't look like strategists, right? We really redefined who it was um, that uh, political consultants should look like. Um, that they don't, you know, we, it's not this archetype of this white man that comes in who's older, who's not, who, you know, is seen as the person that knows all of this is the kingmaker. Um, but in fact, it, they're the queen makers, right? That, um, they, they can be 5'1, they can be an immigrant, they can be Latina. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and, you know, and definitely create some change in, um, in the political world. So that's, that's how great. I got my, my start. I thought you were that's six great. feet tall, baby. I won. Strong. I won. Is early money still like yeast? Early money is still very much like yeast. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, yes, I mean, so I don't know if that was like a question in regards to the fundraising piece, exactly. but. Does it still work? Yeah. So for those that don't know, there is no Emily at Emily's list. <laughs> Emily is an acronym that stands for early money is like yeast because it makes the dough rise. Right? <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, at the time that Emily's List was founded, no woman had ever been elected to the U.S. Senate in her own right. And so for us, helping women, um, fundraising continues to be the number one reason and the barrier for why oftentimes women don't run. Right. And for me, I go in and I work with women and I say, I don't need you to think about how much you're going to raise. I right now, I don't need you to think about, can I raise this money? Right. What I want you to think about is, do I, can I put in the time that I need to dedicate to run a smart and viable race? I will teach you how to raise money. I will teach you who you need to go, how to make a pitch. I will teach you to do call time. Right. And so, yes, uh, fundraising continues th- to be the number one thing, um, but it's important to know that there are a lot of resources out there for women. Emerge, Emily's List, uh, Close the Gap here in California, so many other organizations that help women and elevate them around these around the skill building piece that um, make is starting to break that barrier more and more. Can, can I? Add, yeah, of add course, Amy. So there was this lot of talk about women. But the reason I focus on women of color is because 2016 demonstrated that women of, that race more than gender defined how how people show up in the voting booth, and that there is no women's thing. There's uh, there is more and more a recognition that women of color have a unique, very important far more progressive, more democratic um, uh, sensibility. And women of color are the top organizers in almost every place you go, and especially in the swing states and the swing districts Mm -hmm. in California, all the way out to the South and Southwest, Arizona, Texas, and other places that never get any shine. So if I say the name David Plouffe, everyone knows who that is, basically. That's one of those dudes. Mm-hmm. Pluff. <laughs> She's even correcting. I'm not saying his name right. Whatever. <laughs> Former boss. Does everyone, by the way, does everyone agree with us? There is no women's. Let, and let me just say, I, that because it is worthy of talking mm-hmm. about it, mm-hmm. and women of color voted uh, significantly against Trump. 
and white women voted for Trump, the majority. And that is irrefutable. And that is an indication that we need to focus and elevate the political vision and organizing um, and leadership of women of color. So um, I, I would not have done this had not 2016 happened that forced our hand in terms of defining ourselves uh, in, uh, distinctly. But I also want to say women of color is not a monolith. And we don't, first of all, there's so many different groups, you know, it, in the API community, that's like, you know, 35 groups within that. Uh, La, uh, Latina, uh, black people, there's, there's black immigrants, there's Muslim people, there's indigenous people, and sometimes they're people of color, sometimes they're another. It's not, it's not like it's a women of color block that, um, doesn't need cultivation. It's a, it's a multiracial, vibrant core of the most progressive voters in the country and the best organizers in the country. And so when we, when, when we talk about the reality of a woman of color running, the way, the, the way to think about it from a political perspective is the fact is women of color are the most likely to be primaried in the country, any race and gender, women of color. That means from any level, right, we are so, uh, we are underrepresented in terms of our population and more likely for some dude or some gatekeeper to say that person isn't electable. And I know you know this argument because that has been shoved down your throat in the presidential contest that we're experiencing right now about who is electable and who is not. And race and gender play a role in that. And I think uh, that's the thing I would love to talk about as it relates to who can run who can raise money, who's uh, validated, who's, uh, who they're saying is polling um, strong, all of that stuff, which, which ultimately sets them up to either drop out of a race, even though they qualify for the stage. Don't make me say it. <laughs> or stay in, even though you're, you're polling at less than 1%. Right. That's all I'm saying. No, and it, yeah. And <laughs> I Johanna, think the big, it's a reaction. No, absolutely. And I think the big thing is how... <laughs> We have defined uh, viability, right? And that's really at the crest of this, right? And so I think um, when I go in and I recruit women to run, I have to take away that bias of what viability looks like because we have it. Right. That viability looks like um, a certain amount of money. Viability looks like a certain amount of endorsements. Viability looks like a certain type of person. And so because I get it all the time. Well, I don't know if she is electable in that district. And that for me is code that, you know, maybe this and most of it is referred to women of color when they say that. And so for me, I have to push and say, no, this person is electable. Look at her record. Look what she's done in the community. We have to support her. Early support is key for many of these women, in particular women of color, where oftentimes the bar for them to perform, to be viable and electable is nowhere near the bar that it is for men, but certainly even for white women. And so we do have to redefine what viability looks like. And at least for me, um, having these conversations with, you know, thought partners in the states that I work in becomes very key so that um, we take away that bias of this person or this candidate needs to look a certain way, but instead, what are the other markers that we need to be looking at so that we do make these women um, viable, right, uh, and help them uh, win races for sure. I think, so, oh, okay. sorry, Excuse I just wanted to add one because I think that the other the other side to this is that it's not just the candidate, right? It's not just like you can have um, a candidate who's a white woman. You could even have a candidate who's a man. I hear that they run for office too. Um, <laughs> but you can, if, if you're, and, and we are all obviously talking about democratic candidates for office, you cannot be successful as a democratic candidate for office in this country. If you cannot speak to communities of color and women of color as an organizing block, as a voting block. And, and their political power is not just in them as the candidate and running for office, um, although that is certainly a big piece of it. Um, but even if that is not 
your own identity as a candidate. Um, you are not going to be successful if you cannot speak to the values and the action required by those communities. Um, because a lot of political giving and organizing is about building up the infrastructure um, within those communities and, and like Stacey's work, increasing access to the ballot, for example. Um, you're not going to win unless you can harness and, um, and speak to those concerns. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So, Kamala Harris... From here, minority woman, highly qualified. Um, any comments on what's happened? Is this a case in point of what you're talking about? I uh, look forward to Supreme Court Justice the Harris in yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of opinions. Please, I'll take, speak it. Speak up. Uh, um, so I am a longtime fan and lover of Senator Harris. What I, what I would say is I think where I've struggled in watching. So in my job, what I do is focus on making sure that all the candidates care about immigration. Well, um, in my personal experience. So I, I'm newer to the Bay. Um, and I've spent the last six and a half years of my life stalking the United States Congress on both sides of the aisle. So I am intimately aware of how strong, a United States Senator or a Congress um, person is. Um, and there on immigration, there is like no United States senators stronger than the Harris office um, in DC. Um, so selfishly, I'm very excited that she will be um, continuing her leadership development within the Senate. But I think um, part of the challenge when we get to this electability conversation, um, when you look at her candidacy is how, who she had to prove and, and how. And I think that there's a lot of dialogue around, um, her background in, uh, as a prosecutor. Um, you know, San Francisco is, is going through a transition in, in its views around prosecution right now and decarceration. Um, but if you look at all the women of color senators in the United States, you have Senator Harris, you have, um, uh, Senator Cortez Masto, you have Tammy Duckworth, um, and obviously you have Senator Hirono in Hawaii, but, um, those first three, they all are like what I'd describe as like state adjacent, like women of color to get elected statewide have to show that they're like a little tougher, that they're like trustable to like enforce the law. And so like where I get scared thinking about the future and some of the penalization that Senator Harris faced is, um, you know, you got to get on. I, I do not believe and this is not a dig to Elizabeth Warren, but I do not believe that if, um, Senator Harris or, um, Senator Booker were like law school professors for a large part of their career that they would be on the short list um, to be president. And that's like real talk and talk that we have to have. Um, and so I just think that she had a lot of uphill battles to get to be statewide in California um, off jump <laughs> and that she this was a, a, a challenging climb. But I think that like, you know, there was 20 people in the race. We don't need to like dig into a million postmortem things. And I would love to see her on the Supreme Court as the Attorney General of the United States or in Senate leadership. You know, there's a million awesome things um, ahead of her and I'm excited about it. Can I add to that too? Yeah. I think also with Senator Harris, my opinion was not that a lot of people were saying that she wasn't viable or electable. It was that this whole misinformation around what the country is quote unquote ready for. Um, and I think we need to add that to the conversation because when a candidate of color is running, especially a woman of color is running, it's constantly said about them, the country isn't ready, the city isn't ready, the state isn't ready. Um, and I think I'm obviously really sad that she dropped out of the race, but she continued to prove over and over again, just like so many women of color have before her, that it's not about whether or not we're ready. These are viable candidates. They can be elected, um, and we need to change history like we have in the past. And so the question is more so, how do we make more people believe that they are ready, not just is the country, quote-unquote, ready? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and I would, I would just say that it's it's part of it is believing, and then you have to hear a story that changes, displaces the old story, which is a lot of the, the work uh, we're doing right now. But part of it is understanding actually who lives in this country. We do, exactly. first of all, <laughs> all of us here in the room. We live in the country. Uh, Cal- California's majority people of color. One of four voters in this state are women of color. And there are massive numbers of eligible and unregistered people in this state. And you can extend it out. There are seven states that are majority people of color. Georgia's almost there. We'll be in a couple of years. Um, uh, that the, the whole argument that... Um, Julian Castro initiated at the national level about why why is uh, Iowa, New Hampshire getting to call the shots and winnowing right. down the field when these are very white and super teeny states. Yeah. We could have a hundred little Iowas in California. <laughs> I don't understand this. And he brought it up, and it's a legitimate question about understanding that um, uh, that the, the the populations and and the voting block that that how how much our country has changed. And what that means about who is actually electable right now and what politics inspire. And it could be, I believe, it can be um, any race or gender, any race or gender that can speak the language of solidarity. We saw that beautifully. We saw it beautifully with Barack Obama. But it doesn't have to be a person who looks or talks, whatever, Barack Obama. It could be anybody who speaks the language of solidarity and understands that our country is made up of a bunch of different people who hail from a bunch of different places. And it's major- there's no minority. So my personal ask, please stop saying that in the context of uh, the population. Stop talking about people of color as a minority. We are the majority. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> So I think that flips that that flips a script on who we can elect and whose vote matters and what is the path to victory. And I think that has everything to do with where we're going in 2020. Thank you. Let's switch over to the corporate business side of things for a moment and involve Julie more in this conversation. So. Um, a law passed in California last year That's right. uh, requiring companies to have one, at least one female director. Is that correct? Can That's you tell right. us a little bit about the law, what's been the impact of the law, and in general, sure. how are things going? In- uh, okay, so we have 20 years of data of McKinsey Catalyst that says that companies that have diversity on their boards have better financial returns for their shareholders um, and all kinds of other beautiful ripple effects. Um, Despite this data, that doesn't make anybody change their behavior. So California uh, in 2013 put a pretty please law on the books um, and said, hey, everyone, pay attention. This is a good thing to do. Nobody did anything. It didn't change the numbers. Um, And so uh, last year we did a big coalition um, with Senator Hannah Beth Jackson's office, um, and we drove the passage of the first ever legislation in the country, uh, Senate Bill 826, that requires that public companies have at least one woman on their board. Uh, for in this year and up to three by 2021. Um, and what's super important to understand, okay, it's being replicated all across the country. Three other states have already passed the similar legislation. Five other countries are, are working on it. Um, and and this, is, this is what you need to understand um, is that it is not just um, what is uh, the right thing to do. Um, but when you think about it, we, we're all putting our retirement income into the these companies and they have a responsibility to do what's right for the shareholders. And so this sort of old boys network, this, um, I only put my friends on the board or, you know, it used to be that the chair of Chevron or the CEO of Chevron, the CEO of Cisco and the CEO of Stanford were all on each other's boards. Now, how do you actually challenge each other, right? So what has happened, what happened at Enron, what happened at WeWork, it's group think you just, and and listen, I run something, I run a couple of things. It is so much easier (laughs) if it's just my friends on the board that, it won't challenge me very much, and that's way easier. Um, but it's not good governance, especially if you're, you've got uh, major investments from around the country. But this is what we need to understand. This is just one little example. We move the needle a lot. 
two years ago, 17% of the Russell 3000 companies had, were the new board directors were women. This the first six months of this year is 46%. Huge shift um, in the composition of public company boards. We need to get that down market because like the WeWork debacle, they went public and they said, we're putting a woman on the board because we want to meet so much. And the failure in governance in the last couple of years was so bad that everything fell apart. And so we got to start earlier in this, in the space. But just like corporate board representation, only 2.2% of all venture dollars are going to women-owned companies, women of color even far less, under 1%. Um, so we have so much work to do on some of these stagnating numbers. And, and this is the thing. Women have more power, more money, and more influence than we've ever had before, despite some of these sad numbers. Um, and I say stop begging and asking for permission. Um, let's start our own angel funds and venture funds. Let's just take our power and do it together and do it as good sisters. And so, you know... I met Amy and Gretchen and all of these beautiful women. It's like, let's be good to each other. Let's just change the way we are. And women are 50% of the population. If we just propel each other up, prop each other up, um, we can do so much uh, together because we have more money than we've ever had before. You know, there's something I've noticed. Um, I have a lot of friends who are on corporate boards, women friends, and I have some women friends who would like to be on corporate boards. And there's a lot of discussion that goes on about how do you get on a corporate board and so on. I've no, and talking about double standards, um, I've noticed that the women who tend to get a lot of corporate board appointments are either lawyers or accountants. Mm. They sort of have to be there, justify themselves to be there by a particular professional expertise. I have other women who have, for instance, built a family company and have, do $100 million a year in business, but they're, they're a business leader. Mm-hmm. They can't get on to right. corporate boards because right. they don't sort of check that box of bringing their professional, more narrow professional expertise. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I did notice is I literally went to college with this guy and he's the chair of the board of a, of an insurance brokerage company. He said, Oh, I would love for you to help me get a woman on my board, but she has to be qualified. Yes. And I was like, okay, no, I'm not helping you. Forget it. It is right there. You're just telling me you have a deep seated bias where the, the bar has to be 10 times higher. Political candidates, women on boards, anyone who, if you're trying to put a woman up against another group of, of men, um, she has to be three, four times better. And, uh, you know, and it is unfortunate that this bias is so, is so pervasive and deep. And unless you frankly pass laws and require, make it a financial imperative, the asset management firms require two women on the boards of companies that they invest in. Um, it, it doesn't change the needle just because the data says so. It doesn't make anybody behave differently. So you are starting a women's venture fund? Or we you, are. So we are. tell us about that. Well, okay. So um, uh, the numbers have been so abysmal. And this is, there's a good Harvard Business School um, article that came out that said, literally, the venture capitalists will ask women and men different questions. They will ask women questions about risk management and how are you going to make sure you don't ever make a mistake ever. And if you have ever made a mistake, don't go talk to them. Um, and they talk to the guys about the upside potential and how gigantic can this be? And just right there, there's no, it's not a level playing field of even the questions that are asked. And so, um, if, not to mention if you're a person of color and that's the, one of the main focus areas of our venture fund, um, uh, you, you know, you may not have the networks of wealth and friends and family that you can go to first. Um, so, so I think all of you should start your own angel fund. If you want to participate in ours, let me know. Um, but we have got to start putting money into the hands of women and women of color, um, to run their own companies and to run for office and trust women of color and women period. Um, so, uh, is there any, um, any analysis back to Kamala Harris for a second of what went wrong in terms of uh, financial support, her uh, her campaign in a more technical sense? I think uh, I think a question I have is what went wrong for Tim Ryan? What yeah, went wrong thank for you. Delaney? <laughs> Delaney? What went wrong for oh, Beto? What went wrong for like yeah. the? I think like the all the milk toast white dudes. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, tearing her apart and breaking it down makes me crazy. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I don't. You can yeah, do that, but that second, yeah, you know, I mean, they're, they're field quarterback. Look, they're going to be a lot. You've probably read these analysis pieces. Politico was famous for writing the obituary of her <laughs> campaign long before it was over. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, I, I, a lot of people will talk about uh, what, what went wrong and, and delve into that. I want, I want to talk about what went right. Hmm? Yes. I want to talk about what went right. Feel free to add in. <laughs> uh, she raised $40 million. Her last election that she won in our great state, she got 7 million votes. She's the third black woman in history to run for president. One woman, Cynthia McKinney, was in the Green Party, and the other was a super fantastic leader in the 70s, yeah. Shirley Chisholm. She's historic. Now, um, I, I wrote about something in Shonda Land uh, just today. Shonda Land being Shonda Rhimes' thing. <laughs> just think, in case you don't know. She, in case you don't know. Um, I, I, I wrote an op-ed uh, reflecting on what it was like to sit in Oakland, my hometown, and watch our senator, also from Oakland, uh, be surrounded by 20,000 people. Everyone was there. Everyone was there. And when I say everyone, our diversity in its fullness mm-hmm. came to see her. I don't know how tall she is. Is she not that tall? She's not that tall. She's a little taller than Johanna. She's a little. She's about Johanna's size. <laughs> but to see her um, uh, in front of that meant, meant a lot to me. When I was at the debate in Miami the first night, to see her turn to Joe Biden and call him to account for his long record of support of segregation was a beautiful thing mm-hmm. to see her a couple of weeks ago in Atlanta calling out people like Buttigieg for pandering to black voters and not having real relationships. That I, We are lesser for having not having her on the stage. You don't have to agree <laughs> with her 100% to know that white men are given such grace <laughs> in their fall <laughs> and women of color not even grace in entering. <laughs> and I, I think um, I, I think that's my analysis. Yeah. And I agree with Alita. I think she has. You know, if you compare her to, to Joe Biden, he ran twice. People don't remember this. Mm-hmm. He ran for president first time. You remember how it ended? He plagiarized some speech. The second time he did really very poorly in Iowa and left. So he had two very truncated... Uh, campaigns the end of vice president. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there's your there's your standard. So I really think she's I you know, I think she's going to also uh, level up, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah. And um, and I I appreciate I think what Amy in particular and Anna are doing around making sure that the narrative. Um, is turned around, right? So it is this thing about like, what did she do wrong? No, what did she do right? Mm-hmm. And we need to start talking about um, what these women, these women, just like us, even though we know them, don't get great coverage, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are being criticized. They're the ones that oftentimes are, again, being held to a higher standard. And so it's important for us to come in and be able to tell their stories and be able to be, um, to tell not just tell their stories, but to tell the truth about the campaigns, about who they are, about the work that they're doing, and really changing um, and documenting uh, history. Because as a mom of an eight-year-old, who's he's actually sitting here with me today, my husband, um, (laughs) I keep thinking about history, her story, right? History in particular. Because one day we're going to read about Kamala, And we want to read the true story, right, about the work that she's done, about um, her running for office, about potentially being our next attorney general or Supreme Court, you know, justice. But it's important that these stories are told. That's why I appreciate that my story is being told, that our stories are being told, because we cannot let others take the narrative away from us and disempower us in the work that we're doing. So... It is important that these stories continue to be pushed out. And thank you for um, for the work that both of you are doing to do that. And everybody else. Real, real quick um, about 
what is so it's 19 so nine years ago election night in 2010 for senator harris's first statewide race um she didn't win that night so it was like point it was in some hotel room here in the city we're all there waiting for the results waiting for the results probably 4 a.m and she was like we're not gonna find out tonight and then my job after that for the next three weeks was to organize vote counters in the county registrars in the 10 southern counties in California to oversee provisional ballots being counted. And ultimately, she won probably two and a half, three weeks later. But had that not happened, we would have had Steve Cooley, who's a Republican, as the attorney general of California over the those last uh, those two terms that she did before she ran for Senate. And so I think, like, there's this presumption that, like, Senator Harris was just always going to get there. And, like, it almost never happened. Mm-hmm. It, it almost didn't happen because of the unseen work where the stories are not told, where it's, like, ballot by ballot. Same thing with um, uh, with Stacey. It's, it, it wasn't night of. And so mm-hmm. that's where the support and the network of the women, because who stayed around after Election Day was all the women to do all the work to try to get mm-hmm. the, the, the votes <laughs> actually counted and so i think you know she's a fighter and and i only want to like celebrate her yeah absolutely um yeah and i think it's good for californians san franciscans to know what's going on outside of our great state there are some fantastic uh races right now and they're all in the primary or right about to be the primary um are any of you following the the texas senate race we have a really fantastic candidate there (laughs) christina christina Christine. Christine. Uh, talking about Christina, right? Christina. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to? Um, so Texas. There's a big primary to challenge John Cornyn. And um, Beto's apparently actually not running for Senate. Um, and so uh, it's going to be a really competitive primary. Um and there's a really outstanding woman running. Um, she's coming to San Francisco soon. She'll be back a lot. They all come back a lot. Yeah. Always. Um, a lot easier. And, and I think um, one of the big focuses for 20... Obviously, we have the White House, right? But um, the Senate... It's not impossible for us to win the Senate, um, but it's going to take a lot of work in Texas... Um, in Maine, um, there's another woman of color running, um, for Senate in Maine, Sarah Gideon. Um, there's Colorado, North Carolina. There aren't, there aren't women running though, so paying less attention there. Um, but it's really going to be an all hands on deck effort focusing on, uh, the Senate. And Christina is a really outstanding, very progressive candidate who um, is not just as a strong candidate in her own right, um, but part of her strength as a candidate comes from her previous work um, with the Texas Organizing Project. Um, and so she has been on the ground. She has done the grassroots organizing. Um, she can mobilize the state. She has the team to do it. Um, and it's she's really kind of following in Stacey Abrams' footsteps um, in this model that came just so close to working in Georgia, if maybe they hadn't cheated, um, <laughs> and this this idea, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase Stacy um, be, because I love this quote, but I, I might mess it up. Um, Stacy's whole idea was you can either convert an atheist or you can get a Baptist to go to church. So she was never trying to convince Republicans to vote for her. She was trying to make sure that the people, the communities of color um, that were already her supporters actually showed up to vote. Um, and Christina is trying to do that in Texas. And it's going to be a really exciting race there, uh, an exciting primary. Um, and uh, once she wins the primary, a really exciting um, general election race for the Senate there. So we've got a lot more work to do there. There, yeah, there's definitely a, a, I mean, a, a lot of campaigns um, that are that are going on that are important. I, I always get the question of, you know, I'm not in politics. I don't know how to engage. What do I do? I always tell women in particular, donate, even if it's just five dollars or ten dollars or twenty five dollars, a hundred dollars. Donate. Um, 
it is so crucial for many of these women, especially on the state legislative side, those are the majority of the candidates that I work with, who need the funding, again, right, to be able to win these important seats. But that is one way of civic participation, believe it or not, is to actually make a donation to a campaign. And um, obviously, the next one would be to volunteer. But I would really urge you to consider and make sure that you um, you do donate to some of these races, even if it's just, again, $5 or $10, civically participate in that level. Well, can I just add in, stop the bias immediately. I mean, during the last election, the way people, uh, Democrats, people who I know were bashing Hillary Clinton in ways that were so disgusting. And I couldn't believe people would just sit around and thought it was fun fodder. And it's like, what are you doing? You are perpetuating this narrative where we attack and tear down women about every single thing. And people talking about her not being trustworthy. Are you kidding me? Um, like, why didn't we stop that narrative immediately? So, well, and we've had some yeah. of the same thing over Diane Feinstein's yes. age. Oh, Diane Feinstein is are completely you with it. Brilliant. Oh, she's so smart. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, a number of other yes. uh, very smart with it, female politicians. So I agree. But these with you. really old white guys can run for president. Yeah. I mean, so let's get back to <laughs> the the question of donating. And I'd like to ask Gretchen. So um, I've always been a modest political donor, but now I get requests for thirty two thousand dollars, and you know, per event and per candidate. How do you, how can you feel that you're making a meaningful donation if you're giving five? 10, 20, or even 500 or a thousand dollars. Um, well, if you're giving 500 or a thousand dollars, you are making a, a meaningful country that that's, that's huge to a candidate. But what about a smaller, um, a smaller gift? I mean, I think that people, um, we talk about how there's all this money in politics and that's absolutely true. Um, but when we talk about there being too much money in politics, that tends to be a lot about like corporate pack giving. Um, when you talk about giving as an individual donor, I mean the, the legal limit for both either both a primary and a general, unless you're in Texas and they have a runoff and it's higher, um, is $2,800, right? That's the cap. Um, and so candidates will absolutely make that call for a hundred dollars. It will absolutely be worth it for 50, for 25. Um, and I think that if you are being thoughtful about what you're, what you want to accomplish with your giving, um, so say you want to focus on the Senate, say you want to focus on Texas, or say you want to focus on, you know, on a, on a different Senate race, or say you want to protect one of the amazing, um, districts that we just flipped here in California. We have a, a tremendous cohort of California um, representatives right now um, that are going to be very vulnerable in the next cycle. Um, a little bit goes a long way. And I was having a conversation with um, Congressman Deb Holland um, from New Mexico's first district. Um, and that's a safe Democratic district. Her competitive race last year was in the primary. It was like a five-way primary. She won. Um, she does have a primary challenger because women of color tend to get those. Um, so even though she's been outstanding, she's been a national leader on so much, she does have a primary challenger. But her race, even in this safe district, even in a relatively inexpensive media market, is going to be about $2 million. Um, and that is by far on the low end. A lot of these congressional districts will go 10, 20. The main Senate race is going to be one of the most expensive Senate races. These candidates spend so much time on the phone calling. I was speaking with um, a congressman from New York the other day, um, and I try to keep my phone calls really quick because I know that he is sitting in some room on the phone calling people back to back to back. And I'm like, I hate that you're doing this. I want you out talking to your constituents. I want you on the floor. I want you governing. Um, and so I have really specific questions that I try to ask. I try to know who they are when they call me. If I don't know much about their race, I have them email me and I'll call them back because I don't want to take up a lot of their time. Um, but that is all they do. And I made a joke. I was like, all right, you know, I, I supported him last time. I was like, I'll support you again this time. I will take care of it. Send me the link or have really have some staff or send me the link and I'll get it done today. Um, and I was like, and good luck with like your next 10 phone calls. And he's like, I wish it were only 10. <laughs> um, and it was this moment of candor that's like really 
like it was like kind of a bummer. Like it's the last thing we want our, our exactly. politicians to be doing. Um, but then on the flip side, um, I was giving a talk, um, down at Stanford, um, last spring, um, for my actual job. And, and one of the <laughs> students came up afterward. I thought she's going to have a question about my talk. Um, but she's like, I just wanted to let you know, um, I took last semester off and I was interning for Chrissy Houlihan, um, who won in, uh, Pennsylvania's eighth district. Um, and she's like, and you, um, I was managing Aww. her call log one day and you were the first person that Aww. day who said yes and maxed Aww. out. Aww. And it just started snowing and we all went outside and did snow angels because we were so Aww. excited. Aww. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I think that like, like you both like there, there, this is two way thing, right? One is that like, if you're going to be a thoughtful donor, think about what you're actually trying to accomplish. Um, don't try to take up a lot of their time, be really thoughtful. And there's a lot of ways to get information about this because they're going to have to do a lot more convincing for a lot of other people. And, and that, that's sort of like my, my personal philosophy. But three is that like a yes goes a long way. Like they will remember it. They will remember the people that said yes, um, because it's so hard because it's such draining work. And so even if you're just saying yes to like a $25 donation, um, that's what shows them that people around the country are willing to invest not in them, but in what the, the work that they are going to do. Um, and that's another big thing. That's a challenge for a lot of women is like, I'm asking for money for myself. I'm like, you're not asking for money for yourself. You're asking money for the Congress that I want you to help make. Um, and so saying yes, even for a $5 donation or a $25 donation or a hundred dollar donation, um, and not even to everyone will really, they'll remember that that will be important, um, for the campaign that they're running. Yeah. So. I have one, we're, we're really at the end of our time, but I have a really brief question for each of you to go down the line. You're talking to a 12 year old girl. Yeah. about her future in politics, professionally. Very brief advice to her about how to create a, light, a meaningful life. Real brief. Yeah. Um, you know what, baby? Stand in your power and help other women. Uh, you're important. You're here for a reason. You're worthy of our attention and respect. And go do the thing you were born to do. The system's rigged, so do what you got to do. <laughs> it is. Oh, my God. <laughs> the best. I already shut it down. Um, what I think about being a 12-year-old girl, I just remember there's, like, this competitiveness. There's this, like, almost cattiness that you're kind of, like, getting into into your teenage years. Um, and um, I just had a uh, – my I just had a daughter three weeks ago, so I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, and, um, um, and I, I think that the, the most important thing that I want her to know when she hits that age and, and really for always, um, is this idea of, of, of girls help girls and women help women. And you will be, you will be stronger, um, if for, for fighting with every bone in your body, that impulse, um, to, to pit women and girls against each other. Um, and that supporting, supporting women will be your own strength. Mm. Anna, I love it. I would say it isn't going to be fair, but we have your back. Okay. Mm. Um, I think it's definitely be proud of who you are and um, believe in yourself because there's so many people that are going to come at you and tell you you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not, you're only five one, um, <laughs> or you look a certain way. And um, I would definitely say be proud of who you are and definitely believe in and believe in yourself and have the audacity to be who you are. And and I always add to young women: speak up, yes, be heard, speak up. So we've reached the end of our program. Our thanks to our panelists, Julia Castor Abrams, Amy Allison, Alita Garcia, Gretchen Sisson, Anna Natina Sari Tubbs, and Johanna Silvia Wakey. This program, as we all know, has been presented in association with San Francisco Magazine. Yay, uh, based Patty. on the December cover story, The Queen Makers. 
these are queen makers who are extremely effective women here, and we're so pleased to have had you here. We thank our audiences here, online, on the radio, on television. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned.